Hi, this is Nana Visitor, Major Kira Norris from Deep Space Nine, and you are listening to the biggest little show this side of the Gamma Quadrant, the Trek Geeks Podcast with Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. Biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. This is the Trek Geeks Podcast. Welcome aboard. I am your co-host, Bill Smith. And joining me as he does every week, a man with high and lofty aspirations who puts the me in mediocrity every single day, the determined but not yet broken, Dan Davidson. How are you, buddy? I am mediocrity at its best. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be here. I, uh, uh, still on a high, so to speak, from our last discussion about uh, our plans for this summer in August, trekking out to Las Vegas, as it were. <laughs> wow, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was pretty good. I'm doing very well, though. Thanks for uh, thanks for that wonderful introduction. It's always it's always interesting to see exactly what you are going to pull out of your hat when you're going to introduce me to the show every time. I just want you to know the original version of that intro said that you put the suck in success. So which one would you rather have? <laughs> I'll go with A, mediocrity <laughs> at its best. Thank you. Well, um, <laughs> as you mentioned, uh, we revealed last episode, or you revealed to me, I should say, that you're going to the big convention in Las Vegas this summer. We've had a lot of great feedback of people looking to stock, I mean, um, meet up with you, which I think is awesome. <laughs> Stock, meet up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all the same when we're in Vegas, man. But um, we're actually going to meet up in Vegas with our guest today. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we're going to talk to? Yes, uh, we are going to be talking with John Champion today, who is one of the co-hosts of Mission Log, a Gene, uh, a Rod Roddenberry production. Sorry about that. Um, great podcast that they do over there. Uh, they dissect one episode per show. Uh, they do a fantastic job, and they were actually rated number one for Star Trek podcast in 2015 recently. Um, and we're thrilled to have someone of that caliber on the show to maybe to show it what it's really all about and how to do it correctly. <laughs> Lord knows I need the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's got a lot of great insight, uh, and he's a joy to talk to. Well, the other thing, too, about talking to John is it's, it's like an extension of our conversation with each other. Um, you know, John brings up a lot of things from, you know, from our collective childhoods that make us go, oh, yeah. And uh, it was just a great conversation all around. So we hope you enjoy this episode, number 16, with Mr. John Champion. Coconut. You know, Dan, the very first piece of feedback we ever received here on the Trek Geeks podcast was from a listener who commented, and I quote, 
I'm not sure this podcast is for me. You guys need to be more like Mission Log. They're a great <laughs> podcast. Well, you know, they are a great podcast, and our guest this week is one half of that very popular Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. With each episode, he and his podcasting partner, the soon-to-be robotic Ken Ray, examine the messages, morals, and meanings of every installment of Star Trek. He is, of course, a longtime Trek fan, and believe it or not, he even once read for the part of Wesley Crusher which we'll ask him about. He is none other than the lovely and talented John Champion, and he joins us now on TGP. John, we are but stuff on the bottom of your metaphorical podcasting <laughs> shoes, and we thank you for being here. <laughs> that, that is a hell of an introduction. That is, <laughs> man, do you, uh, do you do that for, like, politicians, presidents? Because uh, you should. I, I you ought should. to. I used to political blog back uh, back in the day, and... Oh, perfect. Um, yeah. yeah, it's. Uh, I've learned a lot from Dan Wright's really beautiful prose intros that leaves our guest with, you know, enormous egos and, and heads. And I've taken a few cues from him. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's so funny that um, it, it, no matter what you do, no matter what your show is like, and no matter how hard you work at it, and no matter how much you try to lay the ground rules before you get going, somebody somewhere will write in and say you're doing it wrong. <laughs> You know, you should do it more like this. You should you, you should focus your energies here or it's not funny enough or it's too funny or whatever. So uh, I feel you. Well, feel yeah, you. it was day one that we got that feedback to is right after we released the first episode. We're sort of still finding our way of sorts. And it's like, hey, we got our first feedback. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, See, and that's what's so terrible is because nobody should say you should be more like Mission Log or Mission Log. You should be more like whatever, you know, Trekcast or whatever. The whole thing is and we we worried about this for half a second when we launched the show, which was to say. Okay, there's a million Star Trek podcasts out there. What are we doing that's different? Why should we even do this at all? Well, the difference is us, John and Ken. Right. And and, and for you guys, the difference is Dan and Bill. That that's that's what makes your show yours, you know, and, and you're not trying to be anybody else. So. And Bill is different. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, our, our podcast is, is as much about our friendship as as much as it is about Trek. And we have an outtake right. after every episode that, you know, usually is, is us just sort of laughing and, and, you know, giving each other grief off air. And uh, mm-hmm. it's become one of the most popular facets of the podcast. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I love people I love randomly message me about the outtake. <laughs> oh, good. It's like the end of a cannonball run. Like, yes. you have to sit through the closing credits so you can see Burt Reynolds and Dom <laughs> DeLuise, you know, smack each other and crack each other up. It's critical. Well, critical. you know, Hal Needham was just an artist. He, absolutely he was. Yeah. And I, that's I mean, one of he, my favorite parts of those films. Yeah, yeah, you you can't uh, you, you can't not love a movie like uh, Hooper or Smoking in the Bandit yeah. or Megaforce. We'll go through the whole Hal Needham oeuvre, but that's not why I'm here, right? No, and I mean, fact, we can we could change the theme right away. <laughs> that that will be on the return of John Champion someday. If you haven't taken out a restraining order by the time we're done. <laughs> well, you know, John, here on Trek Geeks, one of the things we're curious about is how people originally got into Star Trek. And because we are geeks, you know, I became a geek fighting with my brother every night at dinner time on what we were going to watch. I wanted to watch The Six Million Dollar Man, and he wanted to watch Star Trek. And in the end, the fight was kind of the dance. I, I really became a fan, but didn't want to tell my big brother. Do you recall the first time you watched Trek? And at what point did you really feel like, oh, yeah, I'm into this? Hmm. 
I, you know, I really don't because I, I, I grew up at a time when Star Trek was in reruns and shortly after Star Trek would have been an animated series. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of always around. And because those two things hit at the same time where you had the, the resurgence, resurgence with the reruns and you had the animated series, um, you had a lot of toys on the market. You had the Mego action figures. And um, for me, being four years old, five years old, six years old around there, and then going into the kind of science fiction boom of Star Wars and Logan's Run and Battlestar Galactica. I I feel like sci-fi and Star Trek in particular were just always around. Um, And I've told this story before where there's a picture of me wearing a a Steve Austin red (laughs) tracksuit when I was like tiny, tiny, you know, four or five years old. But I'm wearing a Star Trek utility belt with the super deformed phaser, tricorder (laughs) and communicator. And I'm holding the Mego, Kirk and Spock figures. So all those worlds were just sort of there and combined. And it's interesting because I think that my loyalties would sort of gear toward whatever was out. You know, when Star Wars came out, I was into Star Wars more than anything else. And then when Galactica was on the air, I was really into Galactica and – when uh, uh, the original Flash Gordon came out, I just thought that was the coolest movie. And throughout all of that, Star Trek was kind of always there. And to this day, there is a room at my parents' house where all those collectibles, all those things that I that I gathered over the years, Star Trek, Star Wars, Indiana Jones stuff, James Bond stuff, it's all still there. Wow. But there's an awful lot of star trek i mean that's kind of the majority of the collection right yeah <laughs> you know? of course i yeah. want to go there <laughs> yeah, yeah well, come on down yeah it's it's in alabama where i grew up it's um but and you know i i remember being excited uh at seven years old to go see the motion picture hmm. And I remember being excited to go to McDonald's and get a Happy Meal that had the little wrist communicator thing that came with it. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it's just always there. I think about my childhood and Star Trek is going to be there. It's going to be a part of it. And then I wasn't into it for a little while. Um, Maybe because at a certain point you feel like, well, it's not cool or I I really do need to focus on other things and think about school and and all this other stuff. Um, But then at some point, I remember remember me and my girlfriend in Chicago just kind of going like, oh, look, there's a there's a Star Trek convention. You know, we should go to that. And and I got there and it was uh, just a split second before I realized these are my people. Why haven't I been here in so long? Because uh, I remember going to my first big convention when I was about 13, like 12 or 13. And, and it just felt great. You know, the, the big things on the air at the time were V. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then um, the first three Star Trek movies had been out by then. So that, that was kind of the, the zeitgeist of the time. So, yeah, I mean, science fiction has just always been around me and and my life. Um, so it was really hard to, to pinpoint it. Okay. You know? That's fair. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, though, John, you are making me trip out right now on Geekdom because you're mentioning V and Logan's Run, Battlestar Galactica, $6 million man. Man, I am like freaking out because all of those things are things that I love to watch as a kid also. V especially. I remember uh, when we that first came out on on VHS or something 10 or yeah. 15 years ago. It was like so exciting to see that again. Um one more trip down memory lane, though, is that you mentioned you've mentioned this on your podcast recently, and we actually touched about it uh, briefly in Bill's intro. Uh, but tell us about how you wound up reading for the part of Wesley Crusher, and what was that experience like when you did it? So I'll give you guys a little bit of the the longer version of the story than we hit upon on the podcast, yeah. which is that. Um, when I, I I had grown up being an actor and I did a lot of theater when I was little and um, just kind of barely got my feet wet in uh, commercials and TV and a little bit of film. So rolls around to early 1987. I'm 15 and I had heard about uh, this new Star Trek thing happening. And this was in the day when you had to read Starlog magazine to get your information. You couldn't hop on the Internet and there's, you know, hundreds of message boards, of people saying like, oh, I heard this. I read this. I, I have a connection here or whatever. You just had, had to kind of pick it up where you could. The previous summer, I had lived in New York and uh, was working with an agent there. Didn't get a whole lot of work from them, but um, stayed in touch, and it was, a, it was a good relationship. They were a very small agency. And I just called them, and I said, look, I, I don't know anything about it, but I heard there's a new Star Trek coming, and I will do anything to get an audition for that. Please, please, please just let me know. And one day at school, this would have been in March. I, I think uh, No, actually, it might have been May of 87 um my mom picked me up from school and she said uh we have to fly to new york because you have an audition for star trek wow <laughs> yeah so we we got to new york and this was when gulf and western owned paramount so the gulf and western building right there at columbus circle was where i went and um i remember going in late afternoon having the reading and then I got called back and I got put on camera. Oh, wow. And I, I want to say it was the same scene which I found. And, and it, this requires a little more digging on my part. When I went through the archives at Roddenberry and I found my name on the list from the casting director oh, saying wow. people who are being considered for you know this role, this role, this one. There's John Champion, MMG uh, uh, Entertainment. That was the the name of the agency, MMG slash Marsha's Kids. I was one of the kid actors, obviously. And um, so I saw my name there and I was like, oh, wow, that, yeah, that really happened. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, wow. digging a little deeper, I found the sides that were written for the actors who were auditioning. And I, I looked through a lot of those, but one of the sides I know is one of the scenes that I read, I can't remember if it was the on-camera audition or the first audition, um, and it might have been written by David Gerald. I'll have to ask him because I know that he wrote some of that material, and it had something to do with Wesley talking to I, – I, I'm going to get it wrong, and, and I read it again maybe like five or six months ago. It, it was Wesley either talking to Riker about Data or talking to Data about Riker and saying something about, oh, yeah, it's like that Vulcan book that he gave me said 
blah, blah, blah. And there's some <laughs> lesson to be learned from that. Um, but I found it and, and I didn't have it scanned yet to go up on our site, but I, but I will do that because it, it hit me. It's just like, yeah, I read these words 25 plus years ago. That's and, like, um, that's kind of cool. Every geek's dream. <laughs> yeah. In a way. As know? long as it wasn't the commander Riker, it's too soon for this speech. Cause that wasn't the good speech. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and, it, and it wasn't, we're from Starfleet. We don't love <laughs> It wasn't that. Thank God. Oh, right? that would have been so awesome. I yeah. would have totally but, set know, that was, as my ringtone. Yeah, right. But it was funny because at the time, you sit there and you think, okay, I, I've done – at that point, I'd done a lot of theater and I'd done a little bit of TV and a little bit of commercial work and a little bit of film work. And here's this big audition. And you have to think about it seriously, not – not that you think, okay, my chances are great of getting this because you know that every kid my age is auditioning for this. But you did have to stop and think, okay, if this becomes a reality, life changes. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have to move, <laughs> you know? Wow. So, um, yeah, things could have been very different if that had worked out that way. Um, and, and in retrospect, you know, clearly I, I think the right guy got the job. Um, he got a very difficult job and he got a job that wasn't always written very well. Right. <laughs> but, um, Definitely. uh, but, but Will's great. And, and I think he's, uh, he's a good guy. Well, and, and luckily you didn't have to wear that wardrobe either. <laughs> oh yeah. Thank <laughs> goodness. <laughs> Boy, that, that'll come back to haunt you. Right. Oh, um, so yeah. obviously John, your podcast is directly associated with Roddenberry.com and Gene Sunrod is the executive producer of Mission Log. How did he ultimately decide to put you and Ken together? And did you guys know each other at all before you started doing Mission Log? We did not. Now, the, this is something that's cool about Rod. Um, and he will never admit to being the mastermind uh, of this. He will never admit to being the boss, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, Rod and I became friends sometime in the mid-2000s. I, I was shooting... Uh, a, a TV slash web show that I was producing out of Chicago. And um, there was a segment that we wanted to do. And we ended up filming at the Vegas convention. Um, I guess it was the 40th anniversary convention in 2006. And Rod was one of many interviews that we did. And uh, my girlfriend, who's an on-air talent host, um, she did a great interview with him. And we just kind of always stayed in touch. And then uh, Mary was in L.A. for another convention, much, much smaller convention. And they just hung out. They just hung out for a couple of days. And um, through that and through our initial meeting, I had ended up doing some editing and doing some small projects for Rod while still based in Chicago. And at a certain point, there were many reasons to move to L.A. And uh, one of those things was just saying to Rod, hey, look, if we're going to be in L.A. more, let, let's collaborate. Let's do stuff. I don't know what that is yet, but, but let's do something. And a um, couple of years went by and he and I were having dinner one night and he said uh, – I, I had always joked and said we should do uh, a regular movie night. And I want to do a Roger Moore film festival <laughs> and maybe a Hal Needham film festival. Yes. <laughs> Let's do this at your house. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but the joking turned into uh, we should watch Star Trek. 
And we just watch it all the way from the beginning in order. Cool. Okay. And then he said, but, you know, if we're going to do that, we should do something with it. We should do something worthwhile. So maybe write about it or talk about it. Well, okay, talking. Maybe a podcast is definitely the way to go. And they said, okay, if we do that, then uh, we need hosts. And I said, well, you and I, we're doing that right now. We're doing that here at the dinner table talking about Star Trek. And he's like, no, 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 no. It, It shouldn't be me. It should be you and I know this other guy whose show I love, Mac OS Ken. Because uh, Rod and I are both kind of big Mac heads. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he said, I think you guys would be great together. So we had never met. Rod just said, I want to put you guys together on the air via Skype and see what happens. And we spent a few months trying to hammer out a format, trying to figure out what is the right tone, what are the right segments of the show. And we wanted to keep it regular to make sure that w- people had something to anticipate for each episode. And after doing two test runs, I think we kind of figured it out. Um, We got a lot of feedback from Rod. And then we sent out the sample shows to friends and said, okay, look, just tell us how you feel about this. Is this the kind of thing that you would listen to? And honestly, a lot of people said no. (laughs) Right. Um, not, Not because they felt the show was bad, but they felt like, well, it's one more Star Trek podcast. Yeah. And I don't necessarily have time for another Star Trek podcast. Well, we did it anyway. And we just figured we'll, we'll find the audience. We'll, we'll push it hard, but we'll find the audience. And, and we did. You know, we, we were lucky in that respect. Great. But uh, I, I owe us getting together to Rod. Hmm. Or at least the blame. <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah absolutely you made my yeah. thought right out of my head no how it, that was good you're welcome yeah. <laughs> however you look at it hey john um yesterday marked the exact 10th anniversary since an episode of star trek was seen on television when the last episode of enterprise premiered on may 13 2005 right. um there's been a lot of spin-offs um with that being said which trek is your trek is it the original series? And if it's not, which spinoff is your favorite and, and why? Um, I, I'll kind of do this in backward order then. Um, I feel like uh, Deep Space Nine is a show that I am least familiar with. Okay. Uh, wait, all right. So wait, wait, wait a minute. So we're, I'm seeing, because we're doing this via video here. I, I'm seeing, okay, uh, a, a raise of the hands. Uh, no, okay. It, it's not to disparage Deep Space Nine. I just, I've seen the least of it. Sure. So I'm yep. the least familiar with it. I have yep. no idea what I'm getting into when we covered Deep Space Nine. Oh, you're in the right Mission place, Water. sir. You are in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be fascinating. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um I there are many elements of Voyager that I like, but Voyager is a show that was problematic, not unlike Next Gen for the first three years. Right. It was a stroke of brilliance to put Seven of Nine in there, and uh, Seven of Nine humanized that show. And um, I feel like Enterprise had many, many great moments, but, you know, it, it had uh, a, a rocky start, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, the, then that leaves Next Gen and the original series. Where we are right now in Next Gen with Mission Log, mm-hmm. it, it feels very much at home for me. Like, I, I got to fall in love with these characters all over again and, um, and see that this is a show that also had important things to say. But 
I kind of always come back to the original series. Yeah. It's just sexier and yeah. it's fun. And even when it's bad, it's good. <laughs> and next gen, next gen hasn't gotten to that point yet for me where I can look at it and say, even when it's bad, it's good. When it's bad, it's painful. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yep. uh, uh, but, but it, it is an incredible show. It, it is. Um, we did a, an interview recently uh, with Marina Sirtis that will air uh, sometime down the road, and um, you know, even she was cringing when you you talk about the low points like Code of Honor, and she was just like, "Yeah, I, I just need to wipe that from my memory. It was a horrible, horrible show. How did it ever get made? <laughs> you know." Mm. But like any show, it's collaborative, and you hope for the best, and you try your hardest, and sometimes it doesn't come out the way you hoped it would right you know that's so true you know in fact one of those episodes that that comes to mind when you you mentioned something like that is one that i know a lot of people um cautioned you on when you started the original series and that was spock's brain and when i met you briefly in vegas last year i'm sure i was one of the the hundreds if not thousands that said you know what you really turned me around and were you surprised at the reaction to spock's brain we get a lot of mail from people who are preemptively sort of telling us what they think. And, and, and maybe there's a little of what we should think in there, too. Hey, I see that uh, Spock's brain is coming up. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, can you believe they did this? And we try to ignore that. You know, you, you read it, but it, it's kind of – this is not a news show in any respect, but we kind of – treat it with a journalistic attitude to mm -hmm. say, okay, we're watching this brand new, fresh, forget what we've seen before, forget what we know is to come, and let's just concentrate on this show as it is. And um, Spock's Brain was one of those where people kept writing in and saying, oh, yeah, you've, you, you've done all the good stuff. Now, now it's just the worst of the worst. And you watch it and you go, okay, it, it's silly. And it's campy, and you can tell that they were fighting with a budget, and you could tell that there was, you know, maybe somebody like a, a David Gerald or a Harlan Ellison or a Ted Sturgeon or somebody should have come along and rewritten it. But all that said, there are great ideas at the core of that episode. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and that's what I'm way more interested in because – the problem is you can go through history and you could pick any TV show, any movie, and if it somehow falls short of your expectation of, of how it should look or, or maybe the production design or, or whatever the case may be, if you allow yourself to be taken out of it because of that, then you might be really missing a great message or a great idea. Um, and that's what was cool about Spock's brain. We, we talked about it recently on Mission Log with another show where I said, look, if you watch The Devil in the Dark and all you're focusing on is how fake the monster looks, you're missing the poetry of that episode. Right. You know? Exactly. And, and, and Spock's brain is nowhere near as poetic <laughs> as, <laughs> as The Devil in the Dark. You know, you, you kind of have to take it uh, the way that you would take a Batman episode in some respect. They're, they're not being self-consciously silly. Um, but if you can get past the funny stuff that people like to parody, brain, brain, and brain, what is brain? You know, so what? It's a terrible line. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, 
but that doesn't matter because you, you you kind of you build suspense with the episode. You wonder what's going to happen, and then you get you get to take Spock and actually face a conundrum. Well, I, I'm now helping these people. <laughs> you know, that's that's a really profound idea. Right. Um, in that case, uh, do do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one? Um, I see what you, I, you did know, there. The worst, yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the worst episodes of Star Trek are uh, are episodes like... Um, bonk, bonk, bonk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just, in, you know, insufferable children, and, and immediately you've, you've got a problem with the show. But, you know, like, the, the alternative factor. Yeah. The alternative factor is completely inconsequential mm-hmm. in, in the end. You know, a couple of guys fighting in a corridor. So? <laughs> yeah. But, so... Um, yeah. Actually, no. If you had anything else to say about Spock's brain, please do because, like I said, I'm a big fan of that one, and I want to hear all the good things that you think about it. I, I want to know what you think. I, I want to know had it always been a favorite. I've or? always thought it's been a favorite, and I've, we've gotten feedback from um, from listeners about, oh my god, how can that be one of your favorites? I like it for the campiness. Um, mm-hmm. It was a little bit, you know, there's there's a lot of serious things that Trek has tackled uh, back then when they made the episodes when Gene uh, when Gene was doing it, and this was one that, although it it had that message that you just perfectly described, it was done in a campy way that made it fun to watch. One of my mm-hmm. favorite scenes in that movie, which is one of the most silly, is when they all pretend that they're they're in the cave that's going down in the elevator. The, the the overacting of the elevator shaft is is hilarious. I love the hat that Spock wears and the little TV remote control. All those little tiny ridiculous <laughs> right. things is what makes that episode fun. Is right. Dr. McCoy going to be able to put Spock's brain back in his head and get every single synapse and neuron back together? Of course not, except for the help that he gets. It makes it an interesting episode in my mind and it's why I've always enjoyed watching it. There's a cool idea at the center of it, a, a, a kind of like Forbidden Planet, where you have this lost society uh, of brilliance, um, the, the civilization that, that was so far beyond what, what we can understand, who had built this magnificent machinery, um, but then had kind of backed themselves into a corner of extinction if the machines aren't maintained and and if they didn't create this you know, false split of having the, the elite and then the workers. I mean, there's a, there's some thought there behind what led these people to the position they are in now. Now you can debate the, the trappings of the show. You know, I mentioned Flash Gordon earlier and and I will defend that movie by saying it's a fun comic book movie, but it, it is a stylized movie. It is a movie that is, purely created and purely reflects the style of that like Italian 60s comic book sensibility like Barbarella and Danger Diabolique and stuff like Mm, that. So you kind of have to go in and say, okay, this is is the style that is the reality in this world. And if you can buy that, you can enjoy it. And it's kind of the same thing with Spock's brain. You just sort of have to buy that this is the way this world operates, you know, and it doesn't always – jibe nicely with our own logic and and our own kind of hindsight on what they could have, should have, would have done with an episode like that. But, you know, we've learned, and I'm sure that you guys have too, that every episode of Star Trek is somebody's favorite Mm -hmm. that that they will defend to the death. And every episode of Star Trek is somebody's least Least favorite. Least favorite. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. 
Um, speaking of all the episodes, uh, you've examined uh, the original series, the animated series. You're going through Next Generation. Are there any that you've had the opposite outcome with in regards to when we were just talking about Spock's brain in that it's one that you used to really like and now realize now that you've talked about it on Mission Log that eh, it might not be all that great? Mm. Boy, that, that I, yeah, you know what? A couple come to mind, but for different reasons. So um, Sitting on the Edge of Forever I still think is a brilliant piece of writing and it is a a great engaging story is it really star trek and and here's what we talked about in the episode is to say that all right you you get the three you you get the id ego super ego you get the ethos pathos logos to kind of uh, uh define these characters of kirk spock and mccoy that's great and there are a lot of moments in other episodes that do that as well but is that episode really an examination of what Star Trek is about. And, you know, Star Trek in big capital letters when we're talking about morals, meanings, ethics, philosophy. So you compare a show like that to a show like The Corbomite Maneuver, which Ken and I sort of hold as like the gold standard of saying what Star Trek is about. Corbomite Maneuver says this is who we are in the future when we are being better than we think we can be. When we're faced with an enemy that could kill us, that has almost killed us, and we turn the ship around and we go back and we help because that's who we are. Sitting on the Edge Forever is a great love story, and it's a great time travel what-if story, and it's a great look at Kirk as the character who, who makes a choice. Okay, But when you remove that and you go, okay, what is it about? Is it about something that is at the core of what Star Trek is about? Not necessarily, you know? Um, so, no, don't get me wrong. I, I still get choked up at that episode. I love it. I think it's brilliant, you know? But you could almost, almost remove it from the Star Trek canon, and it doesn't really change um, uh, what Star Trek is trying to say overall. Now I'll give you oh, – go ahead. I was going to say, and I'm sorry to interrupt, and, and I'm sure that, that Bill has has a, a comment also. It's amazing that listening to you is things that I've always felt but have never really talked about. Bill has heard me talk about it, but I've never really said it uh, on the show. I would never vote City on the Edge of Forever as the number one Trek episode in history, which always mm. seems to be the case oh, for yeah. that yeah, exact yeah, yeah. reason. I like yeah. – Corbinite Maneuver is one of my favorite ones, uh, even yeah. though Baylock, you know, you know, the puppet, blah, blah, blah. But Balance of, <laughs> <laughs> Balance of, Balance of Terror is a perfect example of one of the ones that, in my opinion, is one of the greatest ever done yeah. um, because it is Star Trek. You, you, you said it. It's City on the Edge of Forever is a love story with a little time travel thrown in it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Great story. Great um uh the whole watching how Kirk has to suffer is fantastic, but I've always had that this is not the best Star Trek episode ever mindset when every website you go to almost says that it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean it, it, it's a brilliant episode. You you get sucked into the emotion of the story. And and Star Trek is great when it's about character and when it's about emotion and, and it can use that to bring you in for sure. There's no question about it. Um, but you know, what Ken and I do is something a little different. We're not necessarily looking at drama. We're looking at, uh, we want it to be good. We want it to be entertaining, but we're looking at 
uh, what a show has to say. If we start with the premise that Star Trek is important, that that it has meaning in people's lives, because uh, I'm sure that you've heard it before, too. People say, um, you know, I'm inspired by Star Trek. I changed my career because of Star Trek. You know, there there are all these things that, that really have impact in the real world. Okay, so if it's that important, if it has that much meaning, what is the meaning? Well, you know, what are the things that Star Trek is trying to tell us? Um, so Sitting on the Edge of Forever is not necessarily a show that, that does that. Um, but it is still brilliant in its own way. Um, I would also say that like uh, the Tholian Web is an episode I was really looking forward to. And at the end of it, I felt, you know, there are cool things in this episode. But it's not a great episode of Star Trek. It, it It's kind of dull. It kind of drags. Um, they do build tension. Oh, <laughs> nice. That, that is a brilliant imitation. People right can't there. see me, but I was floating around as Captain Kirk. Yeah, I could totally picture you in that silver spacesuit. I might That's dress good. up in that he's, one. He's year. got one. He's probably got one. <laughs> um. But yeah, yeah, I, I would have to say that that's one. And, and you know, again, that, that show is somebody's favorite. And, and I don't criticize it to try to denigrate somebody else's opinion. Um, I, the worst thing you can do is say, like, your opinion is wrong. <laughs> you know, believe me, we get that all the time. <laughs> you know? I get that all the time from uh, Dan. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think those are two that jump out for, for different reasons. You know, uh, I'll still watch them both and I'll still enjoy them. I'll still oh, yeah. enjoy the Tholian web. But yep. there are other episodes that I go to if I like sit down and say, OK, now we want to watch Star Trek for fun instead of for work. <laughs> well, you know, that, you, it's, I had this question later in the deck, but I'll, I'll go for it now. And that, that brings up an interesting point. Do you find it harder to watch Star Trek now that you've been examining it more critically? Or are you still able to sit down and get lost in it? Um, no, I, I do get lost in it for sure. And, and that's one of the reasons that we'll end up watching an episode, I'd say minimum three times before we record and sometimes upwards of five times because oh, wow. I'll sit down and I'll think, OK, I'm going to be really studious. I'm going to launch an episode and I'll just start typing, taking notes. And, and then I get about three notes into it and I stop typing because <laughs> I, I'm involved. You know, I, I, I want to I, I want to feel the story before I have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some that as I'm watching, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm going to rip apart this scene or, <laughs> or, or I'm <laughs> going to mention how brilliant this other scene is or, or I know that that's a, a sticking moment that Ken and I will talk about. Um, but no, I, I very much get lost in it. And um, I know that I'm, I'm watching it as a fan, but I also know that I'm being, uh, like I said, putting on that journalist hat and, and trying to kind of be dispassionate and pick it apart, figure out if there is an intended message or an accidental message or multiple messages and whether or not they work. So yeah, I, it's both. It it really is both. You know, I've been thinking for a while about a, a particular topic and I feel kind of conflicted about it. And I thought I'd bring it up here since we're all fans of Trek and we have been for most of our lives. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think 
that we as fans take canon way too seriously sometimes? And does that hinder the possibility for new Trek on television by treating it as rigidly as we do? Um, I have a three-word answer. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do you guys know uh, Dayton Ward? Uh, I don't. I, do you, yeah. Well, not personally, okay. but I mean, I know who Dayton okay. is. Yeah. So Dayton Ward and uh, his writing partner, Kevin Dilmore, they, they do some awesome work with Star Trek novels. Um, yeah. But uh, Dayton, particularly if you follow him on Facebook, um, he, he will have rants about canon. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and, and it's kind of great. Um, I, I have always had the feeling. Well, no, not always. Not always. This is more of a, a recent revelation i guess but it fit into uh to how i felt about it before um you know canon is a writer's tool that that is really all it is um this is not church this is not religion this is not the pope saying this is the the canon of doctrine of a belief you know um canon is there as a writer's tool and I have no problem holding in my head to totally opposite views of uh, of a series like the animated series. Okay, if you ask David Gerald, and if you ask DC Fontana, is the animated series canon? Um, they might not say it in so many words, but but the approach that they took is: y- y- look. We had written Star Trek. We were continuing to write Star Trek with the same characters and the same premise and the same ship. And we weren't going to go too far uh, out of range of what we knew about Star Trek to create this other series. This is a continuation of the original series. Now, it's animation and it's for kids. So certain things will be different. That's a given. But to them, it's the same world, same universe, same characters, same everything. Now, if you ask Gene Roddenberry or specifically Gene Roddenberry's office, because it wasn't necessarily Gene himself putting pen to paper, the answer came that the animated series is no longer canon. And, and, and that it became canon, that it wasn't canon, that it wasn't, that it wasn't. But the reason for that is to say, okay, now that we're going into movies and now that we're going into another TV series, we have to decide what the boundaries are that we'll allow ourselves to, to play within. So if the animated series says that we have a 50-foot Spock somewhere, we can't have the next generation crew run into a 50-foot Spock. It's bad storytelling. <laughs> we, we're just not going to do it. you know. Yeah. A- and I get that. I, I get that. So that's where canon becomes a tool for the writers. Now, for the viewer... I think what you're asking is uh, how seriously does a viewer take the the canon of Star Trek as a whole? And my answer is, you know, you'll go crazy trying to fit everything together. Star Trek never took Star Trek canon that seriously. There are so many holes, uh, you know, whether it's plot or time or whatever, that simply fall apart under scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So... You have to, at a certain point, um, turn off the critical brain, uh, not, 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 the, not the analytical brain, uh, you know, again, morals, meaning messages, thoughts, philosophy, whatever. But you have to turn off the, at least the mathematical brain that is trying to make everything fit into a nice, neat equation because it doesn't. 
You know, it, right. it is at the end of the day entertainment. It is at the end of the day a story about people. And um, look, you know, your life and my life don't fall neatly into canon <laughs> if we were to sit down <laughs> and try to write everything that we do and have done. Um, so, yeah, I, I do. I, I, we don't get a lot of questions about that. Um, so I'm glad to have the opportunity to rant about it here. So thank you. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I have um, I have two prevailing thoughts about it as as we talk yeah, about it. Yeah. And the first one is that you know, uh, for me, you know, idic or you know, uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations to me must also apply mm-hmm. to the storytelling and the manner in which it's told. Um, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. for me, I mean, it it creates more drama, creates better drama. But also, I mean, I take a look at other franchises that have been around for. I don't know, half a century, you got Batman, you got mm-hmm. James Bond, you got Superman. And all of those franchises fundamentally have been told and retold in various iterations and reboots and restarts. And they're all okay. I mean, look at how many different yeah. James Bonds we've had. And, you know, uh, Timothy Dalton is different from Roger Moore, who's different from Daniel Craig. And everybody finds something to love about each iteration. And at their core, they're all James Bond. But, you right. know, it's none of them are Sean Connery, and that's okay. And I kind of feel right, the same right. way about Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, that is brilliantly said. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends in, in kind of the James Bond world. And, um, you know, one of the things that these that, that hardcore Bond fans will do is they kind of test each other. Like, who's your favorite Bond? <laughs> and if you say anything other than Sean Connery, then you're wrong. <laughs> you, you know, and it, that just seems so kind of elitist and, and not very fun. You know, yeah. it really sucks the joy out of watching those movies. Yeah. Nobody else is Sean Connery because nobody else is Sean Connery. And you know what? Nobody else is Roger Moore or George Lazenby or Timothy Dalton, for God's sake. Um, so it, you, you can enjoy it. it you, you know, you can have favorites. You can have preferences. That's fine. Um, but I, I'll give you an example. There are things about the J.J. Abrams movies that I don't like. Okay. We were just going to bring that up too. Yeah, right. There are things that I don't like and, and I chalk those things up to either maybe not necessarily sloppy writing, but uh, maybe sloppy editing. Um, You you have a problem when you get four friends together who all kind of pat each other on the back um, when somebody comes up with an idea or a joke or whatever. And, and maybe that's not the best thing. Um, But, I do not get worked up about whether the Enterprise was assembled in space or was assembled in Iowa. Yeah. Honestly, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Now, I may prefer to think the Enterprise is built in space, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I can kind of build this backstory in my head to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we saw space dock and, and you could have these worker ships go up there. But you could also justify saying it's expensive to build in space and you got to put people in space suits to do that, at least initially. You know, it, it, at the end of the day, those two arguments don't matter. Um, but what does matter to me is the story and the character. And and are we able to really justify what's going on in the story? So that that's a case where I, I feel like some fans would obsess about the canon of, you know, like a, a physical thing. And I'm less concerned about that than I am sort of the the consistency of character and emotion and ideas. Yeah. 
you totally just took my next question, so I'm just going to jump right over that one. So, okay, but I, right. I did have a, I did have a canon comment that I wanted to to run by or a question yeah, I should yeah. say, and that is, <clears throat> do you think that there are anything uh, that there are anything that is not considered canon that you would like to see, quote unquote, canon? For example, any novels or any anything like that, or is that mm-hmm. just with, there's just so much of it it's hard to go through. Yeah, I mean, there is so much of it that it's kind of hard to think. You know, there are some uh, novels that are great. And I'm blanking on the name of it because it might have had a very generic name like, um, I don't know. It it wasn't the Enterprise incident because that's a real show, but it was like incident on the Enterprise or, (laughs) you know, something like that. But it was one of the novels that I read that tried to bridge that gap between the original series and uh, the motion picture. And I thought it did it really well. Um, it, it was it was a well thought out story, and it hit kind of all the right moments. So something like that, I would love to see um, considered canon, or at least considered. Uh, let, let's not call it pa- canon. Let's call it like uh, a roadmap, maybe for somebody who would come along and flesh that out either on TV or in a movie or or something like that. Okay. Um, I am a fan of the animated series. I understand the difficulty in saying that it's canon, um, but I also understand the intent behind it. Yep. So I'm I'm okay with it kind of where it is. And sure, you know, argue it out. Let let people who have more stamina than I do argue <laughs> out whether it is or is not. Yeah. <laughs> you, okay. you know, uh, John, at the outset of every mission log, you provide us with trivia, which is a segment I truly look forward to every week. Um, oh, thank you, man. Oh, my pleasure. Um, as a longtime fan yourself, what was the most surprising nugget of trivia you've come across that really made you go, really? <laughs> All right. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of those. And I think, wow, I'm trying to think back to the original series in particular when it had to do with, uh, with trivia. Because I, I think a lot of the stuff with Next Gen – it's not so much about trivia. It's about backstage personality. Right. And we're kind of weaving together a story about that the, the, the further along that we go. I think the fun trivia is stuff like, okay, we're making a TV show in 1967. We have no budget. So we will have the costume not the costume designer. So Bill Tice was actually working you know, at, at, on the lot. But you're actually outsourcing building the costumes to these non-union, unknown people somewhere down the street. And, and I live not that far from Paramount. So every now and then when I drive by, I'm like, hey, look, that's that that's the administrative offices for uh, Paramount. And, hey, that's where Majel used to live uh, down this street. You know, <laughs> um, But when you know that they were literally like – hiding costumes to to sneak them in and out so you could get them down to a place where they were uh, uh, being worked on by people who are not getting paid studio wages just so they could meet the deadline and just so they could meet the budget. And then doing things like in um, uh, Ilan of Troyes where those costumes were made out of placemats. Um, they literally like went to uh, – well, not at the time a dollar store but like a Woolworth – and bought orange plastic placemats that were cut up to make armor. Wow. Now, I, I think I shared this bit of trivia on one of the shows. I may not have, but uh, in, 
I want to say it's Plato's stepchildren. It, it must be because it, it was one of the episodes where you have a very Romanesque looking setup. So it was either Plato's stepchildren or it would have been a show like, um, oh, oh, we, we have the, the Kirk and Spock as gladiators uh, Bread and fighting each other. Bread and circuses. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you're doing my job now on Mission Log. <laughs> well, you know, I, we do put the geek in Trek Geeks. I'm just saying. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. But it was one of those episodes where you had a very Romanesque look uh, designed to the show. And there is a costume in there that is literally made out of a towel. And it was a towel that had kind of a floral design. And there are two versions of that towel. One is blue and green and the other is red and orange. But they both have like a gold uh, – uh, kind of like a gold finish on both ends. And I know this because my mom had those towels. <laughs> and they must have stayed in a closet in our house for the better part of 25 years. And it was so funny because I – I think she's the one who pointed it out to me originally. And and he could watch the episode and go, Oh yeah, that guy's costume is in the linen closet. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I think I think I mentioned that on uh on one of the shows. And there there's a very similar thing about uh uh Wa Cheng who is doing the uh uh props for the for the shows. Mm-hmm. And um he was also somebody who was working under tight budget, tight deadline. And things that were being billed were not always going through the right channels and going through like, okay, is this the correct studio rate for this? Well, not necessarily. This is not a studio hire. This is outside. Are we playing by the rules? Well, not necessarily, but we got to get the props. <laughs> you know. Crazy. So a lot of fun stuff like that on TOS. And spe- um, I'm, I'm still kind of taken aback by the whole trivia thing because as Bill will tell you, he loves – trivia uh mm-hmm. we have a good time with with stump the geek and and being able to to have all that information that you have from actually being there is is it's it's really uh it's really neat to listen to from that from from a fan's perspective um but who has to pour through all of these discovered documents um and are they in fact kept at the roddenberry.com super secret bunker under armed <laughs> red shirt and and right. all that stuff right uh no it's me um you're you're, you're talking to him now <laughs> there is um there's an archivist uh and and he actually he's a guy who wears many hats um who is at the office and one of the things that he has to do is you're sort of dealing with the archive that's already there but then there's incoming information as well. So when we started, what we were dealing with was just a ton of file drawers that were actually very well labeled and very uh, very well taken care of. Um, but you had a lot of scripts in those. And honestly, scripts are not very good at telling you the background of a show. Now, if you had an original draft and then you had handwritten notes and they're great – but mostly what we had was the final shooting scripts and and nothing has changed. Um, so what we tried to do then is start going through the boxes and boxes and drawers and drawers of stuff that had not been organized yet and and just trying to decide, well, is this important? Is it not? Does it corroborate with other information that we've found? So when I start trivia, you know, you know, everybody does the same thing. You start with the internet. You start with Google. You start with IMDb. You start with Wikipedia and all this stuff. But then you set out to try to corroborate it 
So I go back to the source books where that information came from, try to find a little better context for it. And then if we have documents that fit in with that narrative, great. We also have a lot of documents that are useless. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they, they're interesting in some respect, but some of them are just like um, – you know, orders for, uh, okay, hire this writer to write this story, or we will be hiring these three writers for the next season with an option for, and and a lot of that stuff is just very mechanical. So there's not much interest there. Um, So it's a never ending job. I'll I'll tell you that. Now, uh, Roddenberry has an office in the greater LA area. That office will be moving and um, I will be, going through even more of that stuff in the coming weeks and then certainly after uh, the office moves. Um, But yeah, you you know, I'll put it this way. You you win some and you lose some where you're after, you're kind of hunting for that great piece of trivia and maybe it's just not there to be found. But then three months later or six months later, you go, oh, wow, this is really cool (laughs) and one thing that we started to do is we're changing the way we shape the show a little bit so that we don't necessarily have to have a discovered document that fits the episode we're talking about discovered documents are just a thing and it's just a thing that's a part of mission log and uh, larry nemechek and i have been recording segments that will then be their own discovered document segment that will go into supplementals oh cool so the more I go back and the more I find cool things from the original series or early next gen, we're just going to talk about it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and if it ties into what we're talking about on Mission Log now, great. But if it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yep. You know, um, the the whole idea is just to to preserve and share as much as we can. That's cool. What is your take on all of the independently produced Trek that's happening right now? Uh, do you watch any of them? Do you have one that you like more than the other? Or, or we were mm. talking about Canon a little while ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Um, man, boy, you got another three hours to kill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Only three. Only, okay. wow. oh, good, good, good. So you really um, don't have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I tell you this. Um, this is something that we absolutely will not talk about on Mission Log, at least not as Mission Log is done now. And people write to me all the time asking, what do you think? What will you cover? Will you? And I say, look, our directive is to talk about official, and you can put big air quotes around that if you want, but official filmed Star Trek. Yep. And that's our mission. And when we get to the end of that, we can talk about changing the mission if we need to. Um, When it comes to Star Trek fan films, there are some that are amazing and there are some that are unwatchable. Um, And there's the gamut. There's the gamut right there. Um, I am all for people making as many of them as they want, as frequently as they want, and with whatever flair and creative input that they want, the more the better. This is a great time to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You can buy a camera for next to nothing, and you can do great effects on your computer for next to nothing. That's cool. Now, what I wish would happen, and CBS has not listened to anything that I say, <laughs> so what I wish would happen is that there could be some happy meeting of the minds where you've got a production 
that can kind of sort of license Star Trek in order to be quasi-official. Um, Lucasfilm did a great job at, at um, embracing fan films. And, and they released things like soundtrack archives and music and saying, here, make, make your fan films even better. And then they have fan film uh, uh, award shows at Star Wars Celebration. So, and, and I think that's just so great. Now, play within the rules. Either don't make a profit or maybe you can come to some kind of agreement where you could start to bump your shows with ads or something like that. And maybe the license holder get, gets a share of that or whatever. I, I'd love to see more collaboration on that end. Mm -hmm. Now, purely from a selfish point of view, purely from a, uh, a you know personal friendship status, um, I'm friends with a lot of the guys who work on Star Trek Continues. And I love what they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm. I, it's just so cool that they can pull something off like that that is damn near identical yeah. to the original. Yep. Yeah, it, it's mind blowing how they do that. Um, but again, all that said, I I'm not going to go on mission log and promote Star Trek continues. Right. Right. And I'm not going to promote shows that haven't been made yet and are just in a Kickstarter phase. Yes. Mm -hmm. Simply because that's not what we do. You, you know, we, we're reviewing old Star Trek. Yep. And um, when, we, when we finish and when all those fan films are out there and we decide to do that, cool, no problem. Um, but we're, we're not a news site. There are other podcasts and, and news sites that cover every single fan film, yep. every single campaign, every process of production. More power to them. <laughs> you know. uh, well, and, and on that note I will be happy to say that we will be happy to promote Star Trek Continues on our podcast because yeah. we do because it is unbelievable we've had several of the guests on uh, of the good, uh, cast good. on they are phenomenal people to talk to and um, so yeah we'll keep that Star Trek Continues train rolling over here so that you don't have to worry about it over on Mission Log <laughs> good. good 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 well the other right. thing too is That's that awesome. when episode 4 premieres in you know when this is when this airs probably imminently um, yeah. At some point, we will probably look to deconstruct that episode and try to make it not sound like an episode of Mission Log. <laughs> <laughs> That's really the challenge because you guys have set the bar so damn high. Yes. Yep. Uh, well, hey, you know what? Somebody wrote to me, and, and I kid you not, they said, um, I, I want to start a podcast, and um, I really like the Mission Log format. I, I like kind of what you do where you do an intro and then some trivia and then the recap and then the analysis you do the fun part first and then the serious part after that i want to do the same thing can i use your format or like the hey, the format's the format we didn't we didn't reinvent the wheel here yeah. you you just you take it and you go and they said great we're going to do a my little pony podcast <laughs> awesome oh you, bronies awesome you, Yes, you rock the My Little Pony podcast, <laughs> and my hat is off to you. If, well, yeah, if that, that fits week after week into the Mission Log format, do it. That's one you won't yeah. be doing, because obviously Kolchak the Night Stalker is coming up at some point, and then Moonlighting. Yeah. Um, yes. You're not doing the Love Boat, but if you're taking offers for a co-host, because we know Ken's not interested, we yeah, are more yeah. than willing to do that one with you. <laughs> oh, let's do it. Let, let's do it. I, I, think, I think we should do... Um, 
maybe we should pick a special to start with. Something that's got either the village people, oh, Piazadora. Yeah. The Point of Sisters? Uh, yeah. Oh, Globetrotters? Oh, oh Globetrotters, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe we could do like a back-to-back, like a double feature kind of thing. Let, let's do it. I, I Charo. Think there's so much. Yeah, Charo. Oh, oh my God, yes. Yeah. Which appearance, though? so much though? to talk about with that show. Isn't she on um, more than once? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could well, do uh, you could do Fantasy Island, because yep. there's always a moral in that show. Oh, there are know? lots of them. Right. Yeah. And who yeah, doesn't yeah. love Ricardo Montalban? I mean, come on. Yeah. It's, of course. Of course. <laughs> I think Great Ken's missing stars. out. Yeah. Ken is totally <laughs> missing out on the love boat. I'm sorry. Oh, we got to do it. Yeah. We got to do it. Well, John. Hey, are, um, you, are, are you guys both going to be at the Vegas convention this year? Oh. <sighs> Well, oh, no, no, by the do, time do this I... airs, the cat will be out of the bag and Dan will actually be there. So, yes, we will be in Vegas. <laughs> Great. Okay, so then the three of us will go do Love Boat Live. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll record it. I'm going to cosplay as Captain Steubing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to register that domain now. <laughs> and I will sell it to Rod for a tidy sum. There you go. <laughs> Please do. Well, you know, yeah. John, there was a uh, there was an online post recently from a mutual listener of ours that ranked the uh, the top new Star Trek podcasts or top Star Trek podcasts, and there you were at mm. number one, yes, and sir. there we were way behind you at number two. So <laughs> we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on this lowly little endeavor. Um, and anytime you want to come on again, you are welcome back, sir. I love it, man. I, the great thing about podcasting is the collaboration. It, it is really cool. And um, I cannot wait to see both of you in person in Vegas. That That is the most fun thing is to be able to um, collaborate and commiserate <laughs> when, uh, you know, when that's appropriate. Um, but yeah, being able to meet people and, and talk to each other and about each other's shows, it, it is absolutely one of the greatest thrills out of doing Mission Log. Well, we will see you there, and we thank you again so much, man. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. And we'd really like to thank John for coming on the podcast today. Dan, I I think that John's the kind of person we could have talked to for hours and still had just as great a time and uh, who knows, maybe we'll get the chance to do that in Vegas. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we did talk about actually meeting up in Vegas, and I um, would love to meet him and, and, and continue that conversation. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was the whole conversation about Star Trek canon. We've had this discussion several times, discussion, uh, several times about what is, what isn't. Are we too focused on what is and what isn't? And it was good to get another person's perspective on it and his perspective was very interesting i thought yeah it's nice to have that sanity check because i mean you can read any one of uh you know with a thousand or an infinite number of 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 takes on what people think canon is and it's unique to everybody i think in some sense the more we do this podcast the more i'm i'm becoming convinced that that's the case so it was nice to have that um that we're not crazy checkpoint at least not crazy about that. <laughs> right, because I was just going to have to correct you on that because we are stone cold crazy. Uh, stone cold, yo. <laughs> I, I, 
try. Um, keep trying. And while you're at it, Dan, why don't you tell the good folks at home how they can get in touch with us with feedback or um, requests for your gracious time in Las Vegas, or perhaps if they want to hear you sing more great hits of the 70s. I would be happy to do that. I'll I'll sing. I'll get up on stage at the convention if they want in the uh, Gene and Major Roddenberry Theater. If, if, if that's what they want, I am there for them. But anyway, uh, there are several ways to get in touch with us um, on Twitter, Facebook, and Skype. Uh, our handle is Trek Geeks. Uh, you can send us an email at trekgeeks at starfleet.com. Or if you want to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 508-784-1701. Uh, if you want to send us individual tweets, Bill's Twitter handle is at TrekGeekBill, and mine is at DCDDS9. Uh, just keep in mind, as we always say, that any comments or messages you leave us will certainly be used in future episodes because we want to let everyone know what they think about us. Don't we ever. So uh, please feel free to send in your comments, uh, your questions, your suggestions for future shows. We'd love to have them. We'd also like to thank our good friends at Five Year Mission. Um, without them, we wouldn't sound half as good as we do. They are all the music you hear on the Trek Geeks podcast. And um, it is an honor for us to... Uh, to have that association with them. You can support them online at fiveyearmission.net. Their Spock's Brain album is coming out soon, so please go check them out. And that's a wrap for episode 16 of the Trek Geeks podcast. Um, next week, we'll be back, hopefully, with um, a deep dive on Star Trek Continues, The White Iris. We're looking yes. forward to that. Um, I, uh, I can't wait, Dan. I, I, I'm chomping at the bit to see this. It, it, we've been how many how many weeks has it been now that we've just been like oh my god May 29th May 29th May 29th it's right around the corner and uh, I know exactly what I'm doing as soon as that <laughs> link is available for us well it's almost here and uh, I have a feeling that we'll be watching it over and over and over but for now um, we wish you all a, a great weekend live long and prosper coconut that's going to be my tagline, folks. Sorry. So yeah, I was I was I was doing <clears throat> in my head the other night. I was reading the thing about the monkeys theme, and I was actually doing it in my head as Christopher Walken. <laughs> what does that sound like? Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. <laughs> People say we monkey around. <laughs> <laughs> What about uh, what about? But we're too busy <laughs> singing to put anybody down. What about Guy Fieri? <laughs> I tell you what, we're the monkeys, and we're rocking it out right now on Triple D because I can't think of the words right now. Hold on, I'm gonna find them. Hold on. <laughs> you like my uh, Guy Fieri impersonation, don't you? I, it's it's hilarious to me because it's so spot on. And you're like the the antithesis of of Guy Fieri. <laughs> Here 
we come walking down the street. Wow. You're still doing walking. I'm looking for Fieri. <laughs> I gotta find out. I don't know. There's nothing really. That's not Fieri ish. All right, then go to Shatner. <laughs> I got walking in my head. I'm gonna screw it up. It's gonna be like a walking Shatner. AA with a monkey. Hey, hey. We're the monkeys. <laughs> People say we're making around, but uh, we're too busy singing. Spock, to put anybody down. Spock. All right, so pull up the contact information. For what? Because we're going to do the wrappers for John. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes. God, it's like talking to a kid with ADD. Hey, you want to go ride bikes? (laughs) Coconut. I got it. I'm up. Ready. (laughs) That's the first time anyone in your house has heard that phrase. 